Wow. Well, good evening, everybody. My name's Sandy, and I'm an alcoholic. Great conference. What a start, huh? That's amazing. Um, I'm delighted to be here. I, I, I like the idea of being on the agenda at a conference when it first gets started. It's, um, it, I don't know, it's just wonderful. And this selection of speakers that you all have had has been outstanding. I go to a lot of conferences throughout a year, over the years, and this has just been one dynamite presentation after another, and um, that is just wonderful. Uh, let's see, I got sober on uh, December 7th, 1964, and I have had the same sponsor since the day I came in. So that's a pretty good deal when you have the same, yeah. So I've had the same sponsor for a little over 37 years, and it's uh, nice. Uh, he, he doesn't live down in Florida. I talked to him on the phone, but last week, uh, some of you may know Hal Marley up in the Washington area, and he passed away recently. We had a memorial service. Uh, Sue and I went up, and it was a beautiful ceremony in Arlington Cemetery, and uh, all the Air Force. Uh, Hal was an Air Force lieutenant colonel, and uh, they had the... Um, on, and they had the firing of the rifles and the taps being played in the background. There was a beautiful ceremony, and then the next day, the memorial service with uh, every AA you can imagine. Showed, I just uh, love the way we celebrate uh, the final finality of our sobriety here on this planet um, in AA with uh, just sort of a celebration of his life, and my sponsor was there. And it was just great to see him. Uh, it's, um, it's just been a wonderful ride. I had no idea when he came over to my house on that December 7th, uh, 1964, what was in store for me. And I know any of those of you that are new tonight, you can guess what's in store for you, but you're going to be wrong. It's going to be much better than that. It's going to be much better than that. You're just going to have to wait and see and take our word, because I know a lot of you are saying, well, I don't deserve anything good, so it ain't going to happen to me. I'm just a nothing, and um, some of you are saying, I don't believe in a higher power, so that's nothing's going to happen to me here, and I'm sort of a hopeless character, but all of that's irrelevant, because you've been swept up into something that's much bigger than you are. <laughs> it's enormous. And it just lifts us up away from those problems. And pretty soon they're put in their perspective and they're just, they were just created in our minds anyway. They, are, they were just ourselves working against ourselves. There really isn't any problems out there that um, really matter to anything. It's just how we react to them. Anyway, um, I, I'm still feeling that ceremony that I was at last week. And it was just beautiful. Um, we celebrate every day, even the last day of someone's sobriety, with the same joy that we do when we first come in. Um, let's see, I grew up in um, New England, up in New Haven, Connecticut. I have one sister who's got 25 years in AA. I never knew she drank. I had no idea until... <laughs> One year I was speaking up in Connecticut at a convention, I think I had about 12 years, and she wanted to go, and we're driving up in the car, 
And uh, I said, gee, I'm glad you were accompanying me to this. And she said, I'm not going for you, I'm going for me. And she started telling me about her drinking story. And um, fortunately, it was a great one because I would hate to be related to a wimp drinker. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so that made us a lot closer than we've ever been. Um, let me see, I'll just get all this out of the way while I'm thinking about it. I have um, six children and 14 grandchildren, and only one of my children is in AA. So I know that's not too good uh, when you think about that. But some of the boys gave it a good try, but they just didn't make it. They just didn't have... Because they were all into drugs and alcohol in college, and they were giving it everything they had, but they just, you know what it takes to burst through. In. You don't just slide into AA. I mean, you got to do a lot of suffering to get here, and some people just don't have it. They just... If you knew, you're wondering what we're laughing at and um, all of that. But before we uh, got to AA, in order to be accepted, you had to exaggerate how far up the scale you went. You know, well, I have two PhDs, and I ran my own business, and I have three yachts, and I have this. But in order to get status in AA, you have to exaggerate how low you went. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I was arrested 12 times. <laughs> Therefore, the miracle was bigger than your miracle. <laughs> and so we, um, we celebrate this. Uh, I love your theme, the people that wouldn't ordinarily mix. And thank God, you know, we have a tendency as human beings to hang around people just like ourselves. Wow, is that boring? You know, just same thing, same place, same ideas, same everything. And um, we have a tendency to not listen to anyone else who isn't in that league, whatever it may be. Tall people, skinny people, white people, black people, old people, young people, men, women. And we just go, my little group has all the answers and there's no sense listening to any of them. And I'll tell you, you're going to find out that you're going to get answers and insights into your life from people that you are going to be so surprised. You're going to find out that if you're a Ph.D., that there's somebody with just street smarts that's going to tell you things about life that are going to blow your mind. And so um, it really pays to listen in Alcoholics Anonymous. So it's, a, it's a lost art. I remember when I got sober, we did not go to discussion meetings for three months all speaker meetings and i was had to sit in the front row that's my sponsor incurable row right up here and the job was to listen 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 um i used to think listening was done with the eyes i just waited for your mouth to stop so that we could get some wisdom you know what i mean i was just waiting for my turn to get in there because there wasn't much sense listening to any, you know, I mean, what do you know? And uh, listening is a wonderful act of humility. 
It's a tremendous act of humility. And so we come in here and we got all of these people who normally wouldn't mix and we start listening to everyone. And we start learning that we're no different. We're all the same. We all have the same heart and we all have the same desires and we all have the same frustrations and we all have the same problems. And now in AA we all have the same solution. And it just becomes a wonderful society. But Bill calls this a society. And that's a cool name, you know. It's even better than fellowships. There's a society <laughs> where we all are living in, in sort of a model world. And I really love AA. I love um, its problems. I love its successes. I love the way it rebounds from every little wrinkle that comes along. And we're going, oh, my goodness. This will be the end of AA, right? <laughs> oh, somebody said drugs the other day. Oh, shit. <laughs> Oh, God, there's been more things going to be the end of AA since I've been in. And, and we all know what holds AA together. I, at least I know what holds AA together. Booze. <laughs> it's just waiting out there, patrolling around, just waiting for somebody to say, the heck with AA, and then it goes, you're not going to stay in AA? No, I'm not. Well, let me work on you for a while. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Pretty soon we're coming back through the door, so that's why we don't have to pressure each other. That's why we don't have must. That's why we don't have all these things. We have these suggestions because the pressure's already been applied, and it's going to keep being applied unless we find this solution. And so this is a, a wonderful society, and I'm, I've had a lot of fun being in it, and I intend to have a lot more fun with as many days as I got left. Hope it's a lot. Um, where was I? I was in New England. And uh, so anyway, I had one sister, and we were brought up in the Catholic Church. When I, my first 10 years of sobriety, I used to blame my alcoholism on the Catholic Church. It just was so convenient. You know what I mean? Oh, they made me think this, and they made me think that, and I had all these frightening ideas and all this, and... Uh, now I don't care what my alcoholism came from. It's an irrelevant issue. I, when I was new, I thought if I found out why I was an alcoholic, I might be able to drink again. <laughs> I was obsessed with why I was an alcoholic, and now it's like, who cares? doesn't matter at all. I'm glad I'm an alcoholic. I'm glad that I was forced in here. My watch disappeared under here. We might have been here all night. <laughs> Well, I guess it's going to be down here. And so I'm not interested now at all in why I became an alcoholic. I'm very grateful because had I not found AA or a spiritual path uh, and was not an alcoholic, I would just be an elderly, skinny neurotic wandering around out there <laughs> wondering what was going on because that's where I was when I started. You know what I mean? When I started drinking, I was a... Teenage skinny neurotic wandering around wondering what's going on uh, Trying to um, pretend that I did know what was going on because if I recall if when you're 15 16 You have to be cool and a cool person knows what's going on And I hadn't got a clue. I was I would listen in on conversations hoping to eavesdrop on what was going on 
saw a lot of people who looked like they knew what was going on. And so I picked up information from the church, from my parents, from guys I was hanging around with, and a lot of information off of bathroom walls. <laughs> and, uh, you remember that? You know, you're about 13, you go, what? <laughs> oh, my God. But you can't ask anybody because then you wouldn't be cool. So you... And we accumulate a lot of these ideas that we just took in and went, ah, either got it frightened by or excited by or whatever, and they're still in there. They just stayed there until you get an AA, and then you're allowed to get rid of them, and you inventory these things, and it says old ideas availed us nothing, and those things got to go because they're not true. But I had collected a lot of them, and um, I was a very good student. Um, and I got into a prep school there that was, my father was, um, uh, had graduated from Yale University and went off to work as an engineer. The depression hit. His company closed. He, I think he only worked one year. And then there were no jobs in the United States, just about. And so the university offered him a position in the maintenance field, and he ended up retiring as in charge of maintenance and construction there. And so he set me up to go to this little prep school in New Haven that was a funnel right into uh, Yale. I got very high grades. I was on the track team as a captain. I was on the soccer team. And, you know, I loved athletics. I'm um, just cooling along like a good guy. I was it's like, you know, they voted me the best natured in the class. You got to watch out for people who are voted the best natured. You know what I'm saying? Because they're like this. Ha, 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 ha. But... They never express any of their anger or any of their resentments because they're too happy all the time. And underneath is uh, just a lot of fear and confusion and it's waiting to explode. And, of course, the key to all of this was as soon as I let alcohol in, then we got to know the real me. And then there was a little personality change that took place and people are going, God, that good-natured guy just broke a... Plate glass, win plate glass window and is punching a cop out over there and it's like amazing personality change well it wasn't really a change this is a real personality finally coming out and um, so when I got down to the university I was very intimidated by all these guys that came from all over the country and they had convertibles and they all were handsome and they all were rich and they knew what was going on and I didn't and I, I had this feeling I just always had it that there was something wrong with me. I didn't know exactly what it was, but someday they were going to find out. And I knew in the freshman years about a thousand freshmen, and I just had this feeling someday they're going to call all of the thousand out into the, the old campus, and the dean is going to get up at the loudspeaker system and go, gentlemen, we have found that there's an imposter in our midst. <laughs> And we're going to identify him tonight, and he's going to be leaving the camp. But there he is right there. And he was going to point at me. And I was going to have to leave because they would find out that there was a, a, a nothing person out there. You know what I'm talking about? I didn't have anything. I didn't stand for anything. There was just nothing inside of me. I didn't know anything. That's what I felt about me. And I think I've always told this story whenever I tell myself about my first drink because that's when I became an alcoholic, like that. And it was one of these things where there was a typewritten thing on the board and it said the following 30 guys meet in such and such a room in this hall and get to know each other. 
7 o'clock at night. Just go in there, introduce yourself, meet all these other 29 guys, and go on your way. And that was terrifying to me. I just That was something I could not do. But that night I said, I'm going to. Now, I'd been in school for about two or three months, still not drinking. And my roommates are going, you ought to be drinking. You're in college. You're, no, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. And um, so I got to this thing that night. I looked around. I said, go, go for it. Just go up there, stick your hand out. And I started over to the first group of four people, and they all turned and looked at me. You know the look? Like, we got enough friends? <laughs> <laughs> This is a closed circle. <laughs> and I was, so I made a little fake like, I really wasn't coming there, I was going over there. And each little group that I approached gave me the freeze, gave me that look, gave me that, we don't want you in here. And so I just went to, you know, like six different places and then total rejection set in and I was about to do what I always do, which is leave. That's how you reduce the pressure and the anxiety, just run. And there was a bar there. And I said, well, I'm gonna, they said alcohol will make you feel good, so I'm going to feel good. So I went up and had this drink, and nothing happened. I had another drink, nothing happened. So I was having my third drink, waiting for this wonderful transformation, and I decided it wasn't going to happen. I put the drink down, started to leave, and I turned around, and those 30 mean guys were gone, and they'd been replaced by 30 of the friendliest guys I have ever seen. <laughs> I... I looked around, and every one of those guys was looking at me, begging to be my best friend. That was, I couldn't believe it. It was like, wow, look at these guys. I mean, it was a whole different world that I lived in. I could hardly wait to go, and then I had a little different feeling. I had a little strut in my step, and... Uh, as I'm walking over, I sort of had the feeling that they were very lucky to get to know me. I was about to, I was about to bring them something wonderful. That was what I felt, and I'd only been drinking ten minutes. You know what I'm saying? And my core life problem that I'd had since grammar school had just been solved. So that's pretty powerful. The core life, the thing that was screwing up my whole life was gone. And it was solved by that drinking. And so uh, I remember on my way over to the first group going, I should have been drinking in grammar school. You know, it was like, ah, oh, I had just walked through the looking glass into the wonderful, wonderful world. And I went over there and met these guys and I intuitively knew how to say things that I had forgotten. When you're frightened, your creativity is shut off. You can't be yourself. You can't get in touch with any of your creativity. You're just like, <laughs> hi, hi. You know, I don't know what time it is. I'm, I'm out of here like that. And now, I'm me, man. I know everything. Doesn't matter where these guys are. Oh, Wisconsin. Hey, Badger. Ha, ha, ha. You know, I had something to say there. <laughs> Everybody. Didn't matter where they were from, what their name was. Oh, yeah, yeah. Had some little comment. Yeah, it was just so spontaneous. It was wonderful. I stayed there for an hour or so. Drank some more, went home, threw up, <laughs> room is spinning, never felt that bad. Got up the next morning, that's his, I was deathly ill. You know, that first night you drink and you, just the hangover and the vomit and everything was just, it was excruciating. And you know what I thought? I said to myself, this is a small price to pay for what I got last night. <laughs> that's what I said to myself. 
this ain't that bad. Not when I got what I got last night. And that's why I'm an alcoholic. Because alcohol did something for me that it doesn't do for non-alcoholics. Non-alcoholics don't have their entire world transformed by alcohol so that it becomes the single most important thing in their lives. I now had my new best friend. That was alcohol. I had total faith in alcohol. And I knew that if I had alcohol available to me, I had little to worry about in the years ahead. And that all happened in one night. So my new focus was no longer athletics or studying or anything. It was alcohol and socializing. Here, I couldn't socialize ever. You know what I'm saying? Now, I'm everywhere on that campus. I'm over here. Hey, ho, ha, ha. I'm, I'm sleeping in the wrong places, you know, just fall out, pass out on some guy's couch. But I was everywhere. And my grades went down, no more athletics, I almost flunked out, and somehow I'm plodding along through the next four years and barely make it out of there with the lowest possible grades to get out to graduate. The Korean War is going on, everybody has to join the military. Guys are drinking beer one afternoon, and they all said, Let's join the Marine Corps. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we go down to the recruiting office, and that guy could smell the beer on our breath, and he just goes, so what, man? We got him. <laughs> you solemnly say, I just want to sign right here. And uh, I think it was along around September. We graduated in June. In September, I'm on a train heading south. Got to, I remember getting down in the Marine Corps and, you know, shave your head, hand all this out. Everybody starts yelling from all directions, and it went on. All day long, all night long, just went on, 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 week after week after week. I remember going to bed, just going, these guys ought to lighten up. That was, that was, <laughs> you know, whoa, this is intense. Anyway, we made it through that, and now we're all second lieutenants. But we don't, we don't know how to do anything. We're just second lieutenants. So we're off for six months of infantry training, and then we're going to be a platoon leader, and we're off and running. And that training was very hard, and there wasn't that much drinking. A little bit, you get a weekend off here and there, but it's mostly just nose to the grindstone. So I'm in good physical shape, but I'm not enjoying this at all. It's not my personality. You can look at me, and you can just go, no, the infantry is not him. You can see that. It's just... And I saw a training movie um, about pilots. And the pilots were at a bar, and they were talking, you know, like this. And they had their ties, and they were going around like that. And, um, and I remember looking at that and going, what is that all about? You know, that was very appealing to me. And then they had some planes landing on carriers, and it just looked like, wow. I'd never been in an airplane in my life. So I went up to the major, and I said, what's that flying thing? And he said, oh, you don't want that. You have to sign up for three more years, additional years. I said, that's all right. Yeah, that'll be all right. I'll be glad to do that if I can get out of this. So I went off, um, just signed up for that, and lo and behold, I made it. You know, my eyes were all right, and I passed all the tests, and I'd met a very nice lady, and uh, she agreed to get married during this time. So upon completion of that school... We got married, and we got on a plane to go down to Pensacola, Florida to go through flight school. And I got airsick on the commercial plane going down to Pensacola. 
she's holding my hand and helping me to feel better. Made it through pre-flight, got in the old SNJ, and I got airsick the first six flights, and I had to clean the plane when I got back, and it was looked like I was not cut out to do that. And then that went away, and it turned out I was great at this. You, all of a sudden, I just found a spot where I just belonged, and I just it was like I knew how to do all this stuff. And so off we go into the gunnery and bombing and formation and knife flying on board the carrier, and then on Vance training in Texas, and then into jets, and then we make it. And I got my wings, and I'm off to the Fleet Marine Force out in El Toro, and then on the way over to Japan. And I am just one rock and rolling guy. I'm now I'm happy, you know, things are going along, and I get over there, and oh boy, fly hard, drink hard. The squadron drank as a unit. You come rolling into <laughs> happy, you know, you fly right next to each other, and you went there, and you just drank, and there was this camaraderie, and um, it was just wonderful. And it seemed to me like everybody just got as drunk as I did. You know what I mean? But you're young, you can get up, you can do all this. I'd been there about six or seven months, and we were getting practicing uh, field carrier landings where you practice on the runway, but they paint the size of a carrier and paddles and all that before the mirror came in. And we were out there watching our fellow squadron guys practicing so you could even see it. And I was with our maintenance officer who was a major, and I drank with him all the time. And he was a great guy. And so uh, I'm standing out there as a first lieutenant, talking away with him and just chip-chatting. And uh, he said, boy, I can hardly wait to get promoted to lieutenant colonel and get a fighter squadron of my own. That's my dream is to get a fighter squadron. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, I'm going to get nothing but the best pilots in it. And I'm going, yeah, yeah. And he said, you would be perfect. He said, I want a pilot like you and a bunch of other pilots like you in that squadron. And I just felt like this. And you know what he said next? But I wouldn't let you drink. And I went, I remember going, what? You know, what is that? What is that comment? I didn't even ask him. I just let it go. Why would this heavy drinker turn to me and say, I wouldn't let you drink? And I realize now that even where people were getting drunk every night, I stood out. You know, my drinking went way beyond that in many ways and uh, I was like out of control it was just you know when I drank I had no idea what was happening it was like a game of Russian roulette I just walked into a package store pick up a bottle of my favorite whiskey I could hold it up to the light and I would go what's in here is this go to jail whiskey <laughs> Is this traveling whiskey? Is this the blonde shows up whiskey? Or is this the nothing happens, you get in no trouble at all whiskey? There was one bottle in a thousand that came, you remember that? <laughs> that would come out. And you know you didn't know until you drank it. You had no idea what was in store for you, but you knew that you weren't going to be bored. <laughs> You knew you weren't going to drink all of that and nothing was going to happen. There was something going to happen. So that was me. I was just, I had turned my life over to alcohol and whatever happened, happened. I had little control over the events and would often, in fact, have to ask others what had transpired the night before. And so that was my 
patter. I'm, I'm full of excitement. I'm working as hard as I can. Cliff was talking about that, how we put in those work days. We just are, and then, bam, off we go and just carry on until we're just dragged home and then maybe sleep for two hours and get up and go out and suck that oxygen up. You know, that would clear up a hangover a little bit, but it made you so dry that when you talked, you cut your tongue. You know what I mean? It was like, Roger, oh, you know, and it would just... So it was a good and bad, that uh, sucking in oxygen to get rid of a hangover. Anyway, uh, go through that. And now the years are going by. I had different assignments. I was a forward air controller out in California, and I was a flight instructor in Pensacola. Then I was in a photo squadron at Cherry Point. Um, I'm looking around, uh, kind of like uh, Kathy. First there's one kid, then there's another kid over here, then another kid over here, and another kid over here, and pretty soon there's six children. <laughs> and um, I'm looking around, and it's crowded around the table, I notice that. And I'm the seventh. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not a father, I'm not contributing anything to anything. My poor wife is sort of in charge of this whole menagerie, and we moved every year. You never stayed in a duty station more than a year, so those kids, every year, they went to a different grammar school. And we just, you know, it was just chaotic. Um, but if you were to look at it from the outside, you would say, look at this guy. He came out of this university, came into the Marine Corps, now he's flying these planes, got promoted to first lieutenant, got promoted to captain, got married, six lovely children. They appear to be normal in some sense. And... Um, and you might just look at the outside picture and you just go, this is really quite a family. This is quite a thing that's happening here. But on the inside, I was just on the edge of collapse. The disease was now going to go into afterburner and I was going to come out of the sky in a big hurry. And what was happening was the um, idea of interrupting the drinking could no longer happen. I could no longer go 12 hours from uh, before I flew without a drink because if I did, I went into withdrawal, bad withdrawal symptoms. And I would get in the plane with not having had a drink in a number of hours and my system would start the withdrawal and I couldn't see very well. Anxiety would go right through the roof. I'd start sweating. My hands are trembling. My memory is getting all screwed up. I'm making mistakes. And I'm frightening myself, and I'm the only guy in the plane, you know what I mean? And so it's like, ah. And where in the past, whatever problems I had, when the wheels went up, I forgot about them because I was totally in the now flying those planes. And I just loved it, and I was just there, and all that trouble was on the ground. But now it was coming up with me. Now it was up there, and I couldn't get rid of all the stuff that was going on in my head. My past had gotten so big I couldn't contain it anymore. You know what I mean? All the things I should have done and the guilt and the remorse and the fears and the anxieties. And so after uh, maybe six months of those experiences where I almost did this and almost did that, I went to the doctors and they agreed I had this terrible problem, sent me down for two weeks to be examined by the flight surgeons. And this is in the dark ages before alcoholism was a disease in the military 
Nobody was, there were no alcoholics. You could have mental illness. You could have things like that, but you were not diagnosed as an alcoholic. And so while I was down there, uh, they were trying to figure out what had caused these things, these blackout type things in the planes. And the only thing they had to go on was the fact that I uh, trembled all the time. I um, was covered with a clammy sweat. I was totally disoriented and confused. My eyes were bloodshot. My skin was all splotchy with red splotches all over it. And I reeked of alcohol all the time. That was the clues that they had <laughs> to go on. And, and everybody's just going, well, it's not this, it's not that, it's not this. And the end of the time, they had to leave it up to the psychiatrist. They could find nothing wrong. And the psychiatrist wrote me up as a childhood fear of flying that came about after 12 years of flying. It just showed up. It showed up. I knew that wasn't it, but I had no courage to fight it, and they took me off flight status. I waited three months for orders. I was a regular officer and regular commission, so I have a career. And um, three months later, I got my orders to become an air traffic controller. And now I go down and I make it through the school, which is a very hard school. And this is, you know, I'm in advanced stages of alcoholism. I mean, we're right near the end. And I somehow make it through that school. And now I'm in charge of an air traffic control unit over in uh, Iwakuni, Japan. And that's where I did my last year of drinking. No more 12 hours without drinking prior to flying. Now it's round the clock. Now it is, and it's not heavy drinking, it's just maintenance. It's just, you know, an ounce every hour, you know, just one, and then wait, and then just keep it so that I just didn't fly apart. So then I couldn't eat. I lost 50 pounds, you know, like malnutrition, and uh, I'm very confused. It was it's terrifying. It was one of those terrifying years. And somehow I got through that and came back to go to a career school and had a grand mal seizure within a month of starting that school. I was in the classroom and just stood up and bit my tongue and went down. And I'm off to the hospital. And once again, they're going, wow, I wonder what happened to this guy. You know, like it was a mystery. What had caused the seizure? So they studied me for about a week um, up in Bethesda. And at the end of that week, without anything to drink, the DTs came in. And these are the, the hallucinations. They're so real, it's scary. I mean, that there were, the CIA was in my room, <laughs> and they thought I was a spy, and they were trying to capture me, and they thought I had killed this admiral, and they're moving the walls, and they're sending in doctors in disguises to do tests on me. And I'm trying to outfox them, and I'm keeping notes. And I'm telling you, it was like Mission Impossible. I just was going. And at some point in the middle of all that, I just exploded into some kind of uh, frantic hysteria. And they grabbed me and put me in a straitjacket and locked me up in the nut ward for six months. And so that was how we took care of alcoholics in uh, 1964. They just put him in the mental ward. And so in there, after about uh, three months, you know, after a couple of months in the nut ward, I really got used to it. I mean, there's a certain amount of security in there. You know what I'm talking about? The, 
the outside world stays out. You don't have to see anybody. And I just got up, and one of my major jobs every day was to make tea. You know what I mean? And that was it. I'm in there going, oh, that's strong enough, you know. And I'm just well, that's about it for me today. Um... <laughs> You know what I mean? And so, had a lot of drawbacks, but there was a certain sense of security in there. Nice routine, good food, and it just, just those therapy sessions were a little scary, and um, play class was frustrating. <laughs> but anyway, after about uh, four months in there, the local AAs who had been in that hospital the year before, they had had an AA meeting, came back in, talked to the psychiatrist, said, we think you still have some alcoholics. And so they came back in you know, with a speaker meeting on Tuesday nights. And so I got to AA because a corpsman came in the nut ward, said all drunks fall in, right face, and three of us went down to this meeting. I thought it was great. I listened to everything. They were so happy telling their story. God, this is great. And I remember just going, Boy, give me your number. I said, if I ever run into a guy with a drinking problem, send him around. I just couldn't connect that I thought I was the Japanese food. I had all the reasons. And there came a time when they let me go home at night. After about five months, you know, go home and come back, an outpatient. And so somewhere in the middle of that, I started drinking, just one little drink here and one little drink there. And then I was smuggling vodka into the nut ward. They told me if I ever had another drink, my career was over, so I knew they were going to catch me. Paranoia set in. I could watch them looking at me, you know, that's all they're doing. They're watching me. They know. They know. So I decided to join the real AA over the weekend of Pearl Harbor Day, 1964, and I called the intergroup, and they sent this guy by, my sponsor, who was another Marine captain, an infantry guy, shaved head, huge shoulders, <clears throat> you know, like that. And he just came into my house and just went, this is a 12-step call. I talk, you listen. <clears throat> Sit down here. And... Uh, he didn't even talk to me. He went and talked to my family. What kind of a jerk is he? And they all went, blah, blah, blah. you know, they made up all these terrible things about me. And um, he said, okay, you're an alcoholic. Get in the car. We're going to a meeting. And off we went. And he was there every night. I mean, I, I couldn't go anywhere. He said, I'll pick you up tomorrow night. Don't you drink. You know, and he, he was very big, mean. And I sort of stayed sober out of fear of sponsor for uh, a month or so. And then... All kinds of things started happening. You know what I mean? Pretty soon I've been sober three months. I've been through a New Year's Eve sober after uh, three weeks, and I had a halfway decent time. And then it was my kids' birthdays, and my birthday, and I'm sober, and I'm sober, and I'm sober. I'm not spiritual. I'm not happy, but I'm sober, and I can't believe it. This time is building up, and uh, we both didn't get promoted the first year to major. you got to get promoted to major in order to have a career, in order to retire and all that. And so if you aren't, don't have a good record, you're not going to make it the first time, but you get two tries. So the second year, we're both waiting. He makes it. I don't. Now I'm out. That's the end of the ball game. You're through. So I had about 14 years of service. So I'm out with my six kids, and I'm trying to earn a living because you don't get any money. It's just goodbye. Well, you want to see a guy with a resentment? 
You should have seen me around the meetings up in Washington, D.C. Hey, I went to a meeting every night for two years, and look what God <laughs> gave to me. <laughs> and I was whining everywhere. And I was, should have joined Whiners Anonymous. And I can't find a job, and we're all starving to death. Why don't we take up a collection for me tonight? <laughs> I've been out about six months. I'm angry at God. I was furious. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you. I went to a meeting every night. <laughs> loving God. Yes, sir. This is a loving, loving God. You know, the, the old Catholic God came back and it was like, ha, ha, ha. Everybody but Catholics gets happy in AA. Not Catholic. <laughs> So I was just beating up on myself and God and all that. And the Washington Post, I was reading it and had a little paragraph on page 10 somewhere. Marine Corps team killed in plane crash in Denver. And it was the team I was on. All my buddies, if I had been promoted, I would have been on that plane. And that would have been the end of that story right there. So all these people were gone. And I, I, they called me and I went down and helped them set up the same thing that they had before. But when I read that in the paper, I knew that God knew I read it. He knew I just read that in the paper. And I'd just been screaming at him. So I felt like, uh-oh. <laughs> and I think I mumbled something like, well, if you just told me this was going to happen, I wouldn't have. <clears throat> I wouldn't have been screaming about the injustice of all these things. And uh, so you can see that was one of my first lessons in wait a while and see why this happened. See what this is all about. Don't be judging any event that ever happens in your life. That's a waste of time. So that, that got me started, and, uh, and I eventually had a wonderful career uh, with the credit union movement, and I became one of their lobbyists in Washington, did that for almost 20 years, and I love credit unions. Uh, it's a great great um, group of people. Um, I think I've been to the Credit Union League in every state in the United States and worked with them. So it was a lot of fun. So I ended up with a nice career, and I retired and went down to Tampa. And I'm sponsoring 20 guys, and I started a speaker meeting, and we have a lot of fun down there. And, and life has um, been amazing, been through lots of things, trials and tribulations. I don't want to do that. It'll discourage anybody from joining the program. Um, <laughs> But the biggest thing that happened is this, uh, is God. I mean, let's cut through all the way to the bottom line. This is the deal. The deal is this God thing. And if you're new, I want to just point out a couple of things. I think I got about 10 minutes or so left. If I'm correct, I think I started at 830. Um, what is this disease that we have? You know, there's a million different definitions of alcoholism, but the one I like the most that I think most clearly explains the situation that we're in is in the chapter to the agnostic, which was going to be my chapter. You know what I mean? When I got here, I didn't read it, but I knew what was in there. It was the chapter where people who are agnostics stay sober, and then the rest of the people use all the other chapters. You know what I mean? <laughs> so if I ever did read it, I knew that's the one I would read, and I would stay an agnostic and keep reading that chapter. And if you haven't read it yet, I'll give you the surprise ending. What that chapter says is, change your mind. That's what it says if you're an agnostic. <laughs> Become a former agnostic. That's what it says. 
But it starts out, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't know if this is exactly the the sentence, but it says something to the effect that uh, if, when you drink, you have little control over the amount you drink, and if, when you try to stop, you can't quit entirely, like all of us, then you may be an alcoholic. Okay? So you can buy that so that you're an alcoholic. If that be the case, now here comes the definition that I love. If that be the case, if that's your situation, you may be suffering from an illness that only a spiritual experience can conquer. How about that for the definition of an illness? Do you think you could go over to the American Medical Association dictionary and look up in the back under the title of illnesses only conquered by spiritual experiences? (laughs) How many diseases do you think you'd find back there? I don't think you'd find any back there. And yet this is the one we have. We have an illness that can only be conquered by a spiritual experience. And I remember the first time I read that, I said, I don't believe in spiritual experiences. So if, if you're here tonight and you go, oh, my God, I have an illness that only can be conquered with a spiritual experience. And I don't believe in spiritual experiences. Well, AA might say, next, let's get somebody who might believe in a spiritual experience. No sense working with you. And so what do I have to do? I have to change my mind. I have to change my mind because that's the reality of my situation. The reason I bring this up is a lot of times when we're new, we think that all these people in AA came to believe in a power greater than themselves because they had some revelation like Bill Wilson did. You know what I mean? Where God suddenly appeared and said, it's okay to believe in me. I'm real. You know what I mean? And then you go, oh, good, because I've been struggling with this. I don't want to believe in something that that doesn't exist because then I'd look foolish. And so I don't want to do that. So that isn't how we came to it. We came up against this thing. It said, you have an illness that only a spiritual experience can conquer. Unless you change your mind and try to believe and establish contact with a power greater than yourself, it's over. And so it's almost like, if you don't change your mind, you're going to die. And I felt like even my worst critics wouldn't yell at me for changing my mind under these conditions. You see, my, my ego was the only thing that was trying to not have me believe in God. You know what I mean? Because once you believe in God, then there's no excuse for living the way we were living. See, I... I, I had all kinds of excuses, but now I'm going to get a power greater than myself. So I'm going to have to succeed. And the other thing is, when you use a God, this power greater than ourselves, the power gets all the credit. Nobody takes credit for any of their sobriety in AA. God did this for me. God did this for me. And my ego doesn't like that. I like to go, I did things. I I always, you know, I wanted to accomplish it myself. I'd never like to be on a team or anything. I just wanted it to be me. And so here's the beginning of this whole way to enable us to change our mind, is that we have a disease, an illness that only a spiritual experience can conquer. And then later on in that same chapter, it says, the purpose of this book, the whole purpose of the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, is to enable you to find a power greater than yourselves which will solve your problems. Now, isn't that a new way of looking at things? It does not say this book is going to teach you how to solve your problems. 
says this book is going to enable you to get in touch with a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problems. And how does this power solve our problems? By putting it in perspective, because our problems only are big in our minds. That's where they are. The disease of alcoholism is a disease of self-centeredness. It is a disease of incorrect perception. When we're self-centered and we look at the world, it's us at the center, then it's us and them. And everything, we have to protect ourselves against them. And we're at the center of it and we have to control things. And it looks frightening, intimidating, and all screwed up. We can't see love. We can't see how people are concerned and care for us. We can't see any truth anywhere because we're looking at it from the wrong center. Just like when the astronomers were trying to look at the universe with the Earth at the center, and they're going, man, that can't be moving over there if we're at the center. And finally they said, well, maybe the sun is at the center of our solar system. And then all the things made sense. And they went, yeah, now I can see it. And so when I finally came to AA and they said self-centered is the root of my problem, guess what this self-centered person did? I said, I'm going to do something about that. That's what I said. I'm going to solve my own self-centeredness. And, of course, I couldn't because the opposite of self-centered is not unself-centered. It's God-centered. That's how we solve self-centeredness. Make God the center of everything, which is the real center. And as soon as we start looking at things with God as the center, everything looks right. And we can see how wonderful other people are. It's a secret telescope. It's a Chuck Chamberlain, new pair of glasses. Self-centered, God-centered. That was what, that's what those glasses were. They were going from self-centered to God-centered. As soon as I put those on and see this world as God created it, it's magnificent. As soon as I take them off, it starts coming back, getting intimidating, starts getting frightening. What we have is a daily reprieve contingent on our spiritual condition, contingent on wearing those glasses. And so, if you're new, you have a great adventure in front of you. And this is the big one. This is the epic um, part of your life. You are now going to go from just being a person out here wondering what's going on into becoming what you already are which is a child of God. Somebody once told me, I already am all that I can ever become. All I have to do is get in touch with it. There's no God to be found out there. Bill said it's right inside of us. The fundamental idea was born inside of us just like the idea of a friend. Only it's blocked. I can't have access to it. It's been there all along, but it's blocked by my character defects. That's why we work the steps. We work them in order to accomplish the prayer of St. Francis and open that channel. You know where the prayer of St. Francis? Make me a channel of thy peace. Do you think that channel goes over there to the supply of peace so it can flow in? No. It opens the channel in here so it can flow out. It's all there. You already are this incredible resource. You have a reservoir of love already inside of you, and it can't get out. You don't need anything. You need to give. That's why you're so sad. You have all this to give. You know how great you are, and it can't get out. Because selfishness and resentment and all of the fears block it. All the wonderful part of you is blocked in there, and that's what these 12 steps are for. 
and finally we open up and establish contact with that part of ourselves, the divine part, the God within us that Bill is talking about, and we suddenly are filled with an awareness of our own spirituality. And that's what we give away. Until we open that channel, there isn't anything to give away. Well, I mean, we can, but it's like giving them rides to meetings and all that. But when this is opened, we have literally become transformed and the energy flow starts going out. All the demands, we don't need anything out there anymore. It's all, all of our demands are being taken care of inside. You know, I remember Chuck saying, it's not my job to take care of me. That's God's job. My job is to do his work. What a wonderful concept. It, can we believe that we're going to be taken care of? Just look at our lives and listen to the stories that you hear in Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you're new, the deal is to get that channel open, to get all those things that are blocking it, and then watch what happens in your life. You are the greatest present that you get in AA. Your job is to unwrap it. That's your job. They just hand you you, and you take a look at you, and you're all wrapped up in the newspapers of newcomers, and there's puke on there, and there's a smells bad, and you go, I don't think I want to open this. I can tell without opening it that inside of me is a mess, a rotten, stinking thing. Well, those are all old ideas. See, those are all going to go away. And it's going to take courage, and it's going to take hard work, but what you're going to find is the truth. You're going to find out who you are. And you're going to find out the energy that's inside of you that has been dying to get loose. It's been just dying to come out and reach out to the next person and grab their hand and say, come on, I love you. Come on with me. Come on. We're all together. This energy has been blocked in there since you were little. What a tragedy. No wonder we think about committing suicide. The beautiful part of ourselves has never been able to get out and we come into Alcoholics Anonymous. It took that terrible journey down. And if you're ever ashamed of your alcoholic past, better change your mind tonight. Because that alcoholic past is the secret gift that enables you to reach out to the next alcoholic. That's what they'll listen to. I was in jail. I was down there. I lost everything. Oh, really? Yeah, give me your hand. So that past is the special magic healing that you have to hand on to the next one. Nothing in your life has been wasted. Nothing happened by mistake. It all fits a pattern of incredible usefulness. And you're on your way. If you're here tonight, you've gotten off to a wonderful start in this journey of spirituality. God bless you all. Thanks a lot. <clears throat>